0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Sometimes we treat God like a slot machine into which we feed our works and prayers, hoping to hit the spiritual jackpot. And we miss that God paid out long before we ever sat down and the coins are still flowing. Tony Thomas, assistant director of City Impact, continues the series Chasing Truth with this sermon entitled The Relationship Between God's Glory and Our Joy, which covers Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: I just want to say thank you to to this church. Uh, Our family's been here about two years now, and we feel like we've just been loved so well. Here It's been such a great place of strengthening, healing, and we're just so grateful uh, to be here. So I wanna say thank you. And it's a great privilege for me to, to open God's word for us this morning. Happy Father's Day, I guess, to all the, all the fathers out there and I guess to myself too, I'm a dad. And uh, I had the, the joy of my kids giving uh, some gifts and they made some videos, some rap videos of me, uh, for me, and they were praying in the rap videos. So it was, it was, I was really laughing this morning and encouraged, encouraged too But but a unique way to pray for me. So, uh, but happy Father's Day to all of you. We're in this series of Chasing Truth. And, uh, and, and part of it is that us as preachers that are preaching are, are being able to share some of our story and, and also kind of in, in a sense, uh, epiphanies that the Lord has given us in the word as we've been in God's word. And so I wanna share a little bit about myself and hopefully you'll see the connection of those things in my own life. I grew up in a, in a Christian home, came to Saving Faith later in high school. And uh, I was rescued from my sin, and I I loved Jesus. I loved the gospel, and I was in love with him. Uh, But also, as I started to walk with him, I realized that the only worthy response to the gospel was that I would be sold out for Christ. But here's what started to happen in my life, is that after many years of walking with the Lord, and maybe this is something that you all can relate to too, is that I started to feel that I had two desires that seemed to be at odds with one another. I deeply longed to be happy, uh, to, to not, not just in my sinful pleasures, but actually sincerely to be happy in Christ, uh, to enjoy him. But I also knew that Christ demanded everything of me, that I give up everything to follow him. And I could not reconcile exactly how those two things related to each other. Because either I was extremely selfish for wanting to have joy, or, or also I had to be obligated to serve him. And often that felt like I had to do that joylessly. And so if I were to restate the tension that I felt in my life, I could ask it like a theological question. And this is the question, is what is the relationship between living for God's glory and our own joy? Those two things seem to be at odds with one another, don't they? Uh, You know, the longer that I've, live the Christian life and 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 maybe you felt that as well that you feel like you have to choose one or the other and if you take seriously the claims of Christ in the scripture his radical call to follow him it would seem that we have to live for his glory at the expense of our joy and and let me try to just show, further show the tension even from scripture itself so if you look with me at Matthew uh Twenty-two. The, the greatest commandment, which comes from Jesus Himself, He says this in Matthew twenty-six, verse thirty-six. In twenty-two, verse thirty-six, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And He said to Him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so it seems that we can't have any clearer statement. Jesus makes Christian life simple, right? Uh, The greatest command is to love God with all your heart and then love your neighbor as yourself. And if I were to, to apply the question I asked previously, if we're to choose the greater of glorifying God or my joy, then it seems that certainly this text has made the choice for us, right? Clearly the highest goal is to glorify God by loving him and loving others. And if we experience joy in that obedience, great. It's, it's kind of like icing on the cake, right? But, but, but having, having joy in glorifying him, it's nice to have, but it, it's extra. It's icing, not necessary by any means. And that's kind of where, where I was at in my Christian life, what I struggled with. Maybe you guys could relate to that. And so about eight years ago, I was in this place, almost this existential crisis in my Christian life, where I was as a Christian, and even, I was serving as a pastor, and I was mentoring and pastoring young adults, young families that were in this state where our souls kind of felt tortured by this tension that we felt. And I could relate a ton to what Eric Ryan had preached actually last week, and have the same mantra, but I, I felt like I had the same essential truth that ran my Christian life, that the cross is rough, get tough, and pick it up. And and, and though that's what I kind of had is the mantra in my head, I I knew that I I felt like I couldn't faithfully do that for very much longer. And so I I had this kind of crisis in my life. And about eight years ago, I I came to this point where I reached the summer and I said, Lord, I'm going to commit this summer to just seeking you and just restoring my first love with you. And so I took time to just be with God and his word and take retreats. I journal and pray and just say, God, you have to help me figure this out. I don't know if I could keep going in my Christian life like this. And so I was praying for help, praying for a breakthrough. And so I'm nearing the end of that summer and, uh, and, I, and I picked up a book called Desiring God by John Piper. Might be familiar, I had actually picked it up in college, I tried to read it, it didn't make sense to me, maybe it wasn't the right timing. But in that time, about years, years ago, I, was, I remember I was at a retreat, I was sitting uh, by a lake and I just started reading and I felt like the Holy Spirit came upon me uh, and it started to inflame my heart as I read uh, because the, the, the book was essentially answering the questions that I had with such piercing insight and clarity and scriptural authority. Uh, there's, there's several things I, want, I would wanna say, but let me get the essence of what I think John Piper is getting at in his, in his book, which answers this tension of, 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 of living for God's glory and, and our joy. And the place that he starts in the book is actually with the Westminster Catechism, which, which our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we, we adhere to it as a faithful expression of biblical truth. And so let me, let me read what Piper says in the beginning of his book. He says, that the old tradition says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But then Piper starts to deal with, with some of the ambiguities of that statement in a sense. He says, sometimes you glorify God and sometimes you enjoy him Sometimes he gets glory and sometimes you get joy. And it's a very ambiguous word. Just how do these two things relate to each other? Evidently, the the old theologians didn't think that they were talking about two things. They said chief ends, not chief ends. Glorifying God and enjoying him were one end in their minds, not two. How can that be? That's what this book is about. And then he goes on to say this. He says, the overriding concern of this book is that in all of life, God be glorified in the way that he himself appointed. To that end, this book aims to persuade you that the chief end of man is to glorify God by, by enjoying him forever. The key insight that, had, that was totally reshaped in my heart and my mind was that I had assumed for most of my life that the desire to be happy was a sinful desire. Or, or at the very least, a lesser desire uh, than, 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 than glorifying God. And that desire needed to be crucified in the Christian life. But no, what I realized as I read was, was that the desire to be happy is an innate, unbreakable law of the human constitution. The issue is not that I was making a God out of my happiness, but that whatever made me happy was my God. And the liberating truth of the scripture that I saw more clearly was that it was marrying my heart's innate craving to be happy with God's demand that I glorify him. That they were not two ends, but one end. Therefore, my, my, my joy in God is essentially what did glorify him that I no longer needed to cho- choose between glorifying God and desiring highest pleasure, that was actually a false choice. The choice was actually to, that, that, that I was, if I was gonna find my highest pleasure, that I would find it in the infinitely satisfying God of the universe and that whatever I would choose to be happy in is what I would most glorify. And so if we're to go back then to the scripture, to the greatest commandment, let's reread it now with this new lens and see what light it sheds on the scripture. Okay, so again, Matthew 22, verse 37 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, here's what I had missed when I had read that scripture for most of my life. I had missed that the word love is actually a very nuanced word. Uh, there, you know, let me give uh, two, two examples of sentences I could give with the word love. Now I could say this sentence. I could say, I love ice cream, right? You see, there's, there's a desire. I love it. I want it, right? But here's another sentence. Uh, a mom, uh, a brother could be told by his mom says, mom told me I need to love my annoying brother. Right? You see the, the, the difference between the two. There's the same word, but a nuance of meaning. You know, Jonathan Edwards is considered probably one of America and, you know, one of history's greatest theologians. And, you know, Piper credits much of his influence to, to Edwards. And Edwards traces back to Augustine and to the Reformers and, uh, and ultimately back to Scripture. But Edwards, you know, broke down the definition of love, recognizing this nuance into kind of two parts. In layman's terms, he would call it a delighting love and a benevolent love. And a delighting love can be defined like this. A delighting love is a love compelled by delight in the beauty of another. It's like ice cream. I, I love ice cream because I delight in it. I want it. I crave it. But a benevolent love, it can be defined like this. A love compelled to advance the good of another. Right. It's like loving your annoying brother. You have no, no beauty in him you see, right? But, but you, 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 you are benevolent in your love. You do good towards him. So here's the question. With Matthew 22, 37, are we to love the Lord our God with delight like ice cream or with benevolence like he's an annoying brother? I don't want to oversimplify it. Edwards, I don't think oversimplifies it either, but but certainly there is a type of benevolent love that we feel towards God, that that, that we have a, a passion to promote and advance his name, his fame, his glory amongst the nations. But, but here's the issue. This is what, what, what we need to see more clues at the root at the essence of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is that it is a love that delights in him, that finds him compelling and ravishing and beautiful. But sadly, when I, when I read the great commandment for most of my Christian life, I read it as a burden to be carried. I read it like this, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and do it, Tony, no matter how you feel. But but when I, when I started to grasp this truth, everything in my Christian life felt like it changed. I felt like I was being born again, again. That the command was no longer a burden to be carried, but a joy to be received. I read the command like this. I read it like this. It's Tony, love the Lord your God. Delight in him, enjoy him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Have no boundaries on your appetite for joy any longer. But let your joy and your passion be so full that it, it spreads in a passion to make me known and a passion to honor me and a passion to make me known to your neighbor. And that's how we can reread and see the scripture with new eyes. You know, and hopefully this has been a helpful foundation to introduce you to my own journey, but I think more importantly, for us to see God, his word, our Christ with new eyes. You know, having laid this foundation, I want to now walk us through now implications of this truth. Four truths that, that this truth, that we essentially glorify God by enjoying him. Uh, four truths or four truths that we can receive from that. That again, Piper and Edwards have been helpful for me to see. So let me, let me share the four truths and then I'll walk us through them together. Uh, what, what does seeing this foundational truth of glorifying God by enjoying him forever, what does it help us to see more clearly? we see more clearly the self-sufficiency of God, that God is not a vacuum, but a fountain. We see more clearly the glory of God, that God's glory is synonymous with God's beauty. Also, we see more clearly the call to joy, that joy being essential to glorifying God is both devastating and liberating. Then lastly, we'll see this, that we see more clearly the call to love others, that loving others sacrificially is sustained by the power of joy in God. All right, so we'll go through these. That again, the foundational truth that glorifying God by enjoying him uh, is the foundational truth. And what this helps us to see more clearly, first of all, is that we see more clearly the self-sufficiency of God. That God is not a vacuum, but a fountain. You know, one of the most important things that changed for me with these truths was that just my view of who God was changed. You know, Previously, I did see that God was a God who loved me. He had, he'd obviously he had forgiven me for my sins in the gospel. You know, In the cross of Christ, I saw that, that, that he loved me. There was a security that was there. But at the same time, I recognized that God was a God that was demanding, in a sense, exacting still of my obedience. And so because he loved me so much, I, I, I recognized that and I felt like I had to pay him back. And so I simultaneously felt the burden of my sin lifted, but I felt the burden of obedience on me as well, too. And so I lived in this tension of the two. But, but this is what, especially Jonathan Edwards in his book, The End for Which God Created the World, which he helped me to see more clearly, which I had failed to see, was this doctrine, the doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God. It's most illuminated in this scripture, I think, in Acts 17, verse 24. It says this, The God who made the world... And everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, what this scripture shows us, what all the scripture shows us is that, that God is a God who has no needs. He didn't create the world to gain our worship like he's some sort of sucking vacuum cleaner that that, that is completing some, some need he has, some deficiency that he has, some unhappiness that he has in his life. That is not how we created the world. Instead, the eternal triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been in this eternal, infinite communion of love and joy. And so the act of creation was not a power grab of an unsatisfied God, but it was the overflow of the fountainhead of an infinitely satisfied and happy God who desired through the act of creation to display his glory and his beauty and his worth to his creation. And so what did that truth then change for me practically? What it changed was it changed my posture of Christian life and how I saw God. You know, I, I mean, most of my Christian life, I, I felt like I was doing this, right? I was just pointing the arrow up to God. I said, like, I got to give to him. I got to give to him. And this was the, 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 the flow of my Christian life was me trying to give back and pay him back. But when I saw that God is an all-sufficient, self-sufficient God, who is a fountain who overflows, not a vacuum who sucks, I realized that the posture of Christian life is that God is the one pouring down to me. And my posture is I'm just receiving in my conversion, in every act of sanctification, all the way unto glory for all of eternity, all of Christian life I realize is a receiving. It's a receiving of more. And, and then that by not trying to pay him back is what I realize is what actually gives him glory. That, it, that when I was the receiver and he was the giver, it's the giver that gets the glory, and I get the help, I get the joy. And so my conception of what Christian life was started to transform. So the first truth I was able to see more clearly is, is the self-sufficiency of God. The second truth that I was able to see more clearly, that we can see more clearly together is, is more clearly seeing the glory of God. That God's glory is synonymous with God's beauty. I'm not sure what your experience with the word glory has been in your, in your life. I know growing up, I, I heard the word glory. I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what that means, really. Right? People say things like, I want to I wanna glorify God, and, and it just felt like a fluff word. right? You just kind of throw it around It's kind of like a religious word that you kind of say to sound religious, but I didn't really know what it meant. It just sounded like a very stuffy, stoic, serious word. But the more that I read Piper and Edwards, I think they helped. Can change and help transform my conception of the word glory. And again, the best synonym that I that I was able to see of the word glory that God was glorious was to recognize that it meant that God is beautiful. And so, when 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 you go back and you reread the scripture, you see all the word word glory. You can really replace it with the word beauty. And so, you go back to like scripture, like Isaiah six three. You see the angels are calling to one another in the temple of God in the. Uh, and it says that they, they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, the, the, the angels are worshiping in that moment because they have seen the beauty, the glory of God, and they can't, they can't hold it in. They worship and say, The whole earth is filled with his glory, his beauty. And that's what we're doing in corporate worship, right? We're, we're not just giving to God. We are declaring his beauties, his glories of Christ and of the gospel to one another. And so the shift that happened for me was the shift that, to see that when, when God wants to display his glory, when it says that God is a passionate and committed to the display of his own name and his own fame and his own glory, that always seemed like a selfish and an, almost an awful thing. When I recognize that glory is a display of his beauty, I realize that that is a a most amazing and loving thing that God is is passionate and committed infinitely to the display of his own glory because that simultaneously means that he is infinitely committed to our our joy and and he gives us what is most satisfying to our souls as his greatest commitment in the universe. And so we see the self-sufficiency of God. We see more clearly what the glory of God is, his beauty. The third truth I think we can see more clearly is the call to joy. The the joy being essential to glorifying God is both devastating and liberating. Now, you might ask this question, how how is it that joy being essential to glorifying God can be devastating? I think it's devastating because it gives us more clarity of what it means to be born again of the spirit of God, what it means that you are truly saved Because because we recognize this as we look at Scripture, that saving faith cannot merely be intellectual agreement with truths of the gospel. Scripture reminds us that even the demons believe in God, and we know that they are not saved. So believing right things is not the essence of a born-again heart. It It must be loving and cherishing the Christ we believe in. Also, another thing is that we see that saving faith cannot be merely doing right things, doing right outward actions of obedience because the scripture reminds us that Jesus says that on the day of judgment, there will be people that say, Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty works in your name, cast, you know, do miracles, cast out demons? And Jesus said, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Meaning that there is a way to act Christianly And yet we do not cherish the Christ who calls us to that obedience. So here's the devastating truth is that real, profound, genuine joy in Jesus cannot be the icing on the cake of commitment to Christ. But genuine, profound joy in Jesus is the cake. We have no joy. We have no Jesus. We have not embraced him as savior and satisfier of our souls. And here's the thing is that that we cannot change that by our intellect, by learning more. You cannot change that by your act of willpower. It is a miracle that God does by his Holy Spirit where he opens your eyes to see Christ in the moment of your conversion, but even in the life of faith, moment by moment, he, he enables you to see himself and what this ought to cause in the Christian life, the, the sort of fruit it produces is a heart of humility and helplessness that says, I need to throw myself on the grace of God because I cannot live this, this Christian life in a way that pleases God by my own intellect or willpower, but only by the miracle of the Holy Spirit every moment of my Christian life. Christian living becomes a miracle empowered by the grace of God. Now, now let me, let me share a caveat for that, because as genuine believers, we, we know this, that we will go through ups and downs and dry periods in the Christian life, right? We have indwelling sin, we have fallen bodies, we live in a fallen world, uh, and so as, as believers, we do live in this tension that we rest in Christ and we fight for joy in Christ. If I could tee up my good brother, Ryan Brown, is going to be preaching next week. And he's going to, he's going to be preaching this, this foundational truth that we see the centrality of Jesus in the gospel and all the scripture. That we rest not in what we do or don't do, but in what Christ has done. That we are once justified and found in Christ. Irrespective of the measure of our joy that we have in Jesus. That, that we, 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 we rest in his finished work. And, and my brother Ryan is going to be preaching, and that was kind of a born-again-again again moment for me before in my life. That, that I couldn't grasp this idea. I couldn't even wrestle with this idea that I needed to, find, to fight for my joy in Christ until I had deeply been convinced of my rest that I had in Christ, my security in him. Because it is impossible to fight for joy in Jesus unless you deeply recognize your security in him and you rest in him. Otherwise, you'll be profoundly riddled with guilt and shame and discouragement. But on that foundation of rest in Jesus, there's still a fight. And the essence of that fight of sanctification is a fight for joy. And again, that's devastating in one sense because it is no longer in my, my willpower finally, but it is ultimately by the Spirit of God. And so that's devastating. That's devastating to human pride that says that I can do it. But it's liberating. It's liberating for us that know that we can do nothing. And yet God comes, he opposes the proud, but what he gives grace to the humble. And he pours his grace and he opens our eyes to see Christ. And so it's liberating, but also because, again, this truth that I, that I kind of referred to earlier, that it, it marries together our innate longing for joy and, and, and God's rightful demand that we glorify him. That is a liberating truth. Jonathan Edwards says it like this. He says, the change that takes place in a man when he is converted and sanctified is not that his love for happiness is diminished. We sometimes think that, right? But he gives him a happiness that before he had not, namely in God. But it does not, at the same time, take away any of his love for happiness. That becoming a Christian is not that you now deny yourself pleasure, but now a new pleasure has been birthed in you that you previously did not have—a pleasure in God. Now, let me let me clarify something that, that people struggle with 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 John Piper, which is this question of how is, is joy and happiness, and is it only in God? Is it not in anything else? You know, it seems that there would be a weaker doctrine of the doctrine of creation of our humanity. And so the question is, you know, can I, can I delight in the creation itself? Can I delight in a mountain range? Or, you know, one of Piper's sermons, he kind of disparaged seashell collecting, right? What, what if you like seashells, right? And, uh, you know, what about family and relationships and work? And I think the answer is yes. We do delight in those things. Those are good gifts from a good God. And even in the new heavens and the new earth, it's gonna be an embodied experience and we're gonna be with creation and we're gonna enjoy all those good gifts as, as coming from God, reflecting God in his beauty. And we're gonna delight in the God who gives those good gifts. And so amen to, to creation. But here is what Piper, and I think scripture is, is, is careful to guard against and we'd be wise to heed is that gifts can easily be turned into gods. We must evaluate always, is God our greatest good? And especially that is tested when those good things, those gifts are taken away, or we're called to surrender them in the life of obedience and faith in Jesus, that God is always our greatest good. And we should confirm that pleasure is the essence of sanctification to make sure that, 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 that that's how scripture speaks. And we see that in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. This is how Moses fought temptation in Egypt. How did he do it? Verse 24, it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than what then to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But how did he do it? He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward there's this dangerous ethic that we sometimes promote in the Christian life, that the most spiritual Christians are the ones who love God, who are committed to him apart from any joy. And that the the speaking of joy in the Christian life is really for those immature Christians that, that don't have willpower, don't have commitment. But that is not an ethic found in the scripture. That is not how godly saints of the past or how Moses fought, because that ethic then glorifies the willpower of man, not the compelling beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. The way that Moses and godly saints of the past pursued holiness was not by making self denial an end in itself, but self denial was not as denial of pleasure, but it was a denial of sinful pleasure, not as an end but as a means to having greater pleasure and greater satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And that is how we fight our sin, is, is a pursuit of a greater joy. Now, a major question that people will ask with this theology of this pursuit of joy is this question is, what about love for other people? You know, doesn't, doesn't this talk about pursuing joy in God, won't it create selfish, self-centered people that won't, that won't really love people? And so the final shift uh, that we, we, we would want to see more clearly is that we more clearly see the call to love others, that loving others sacrificially is sustained by the power of joy in God. You know, probably this question for me uh, was, was maybe the one existential that, 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 that was one of the greatest reasons I embraced these truths that, again, John Piper calls Christian hedonism. Because at that time, again, I was was, as a Christian, and I was working as a pastor, and I was I was trying my best to share Christ, to love people, to bring people to saving faith. Yet, as the years went on, I found myself more and more dry, tired, weak, and yet fighting to be committed as a pastor to serving in ministry. And yet, I just had to ask myself: Is this how it is? Am I just supposed to be dry? Am I just supposed to fake it till I make it? It just didn't seem effective. It didn't seem sustainable. It didn't seem right. I felt like a hypocrite. And so this text helped me to see the relationship between our joy in Jesus and our ability to love others. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1-2, the context is that Paul's talking about the church in Macedonia, and they were giving sacrificially, financially, uh, to, to, to poor Christians. And so what they're doing is they're loving, right? They're loving others. They're sincerely loving. But here's, here's what I want us to pay attention is how Paul explains how they're able to do it. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1-2 says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Right. So the first thing is that the grace of God has been, been given amongst the churches in Macedonia. And then it says, for a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So we see the fruit. The fruit is that the Macedonian church is a, is a loving church. They sacrificially love other people in their generous giving. But here's the question. What is the root of their love? Why can they do it? We see again in verse one, it's because grace came down in that church, but that grace produced an abundance of joy, a joy that that overflowed in a wealth of generosity that spilled as giving love, even though they had their own afflictions, even though they had their own poverty, the power of their joy was so powerful that it overflowed in this sacrificial love. Uh, They can love because they are so satisfied in Jesus that worldly goods, earthly comforts are not their concern because Jesus is enough. They can give and love. They are free to give. They're free to love because they are profoundly satisfied in Jesus. I love what the missionary uh, David Livingstone said a man who profoundly suffered for the sake of the gospel in Africa to make the gospel known. So many people knew about his sufferings in Africa and and he was asked towards the end of his life, what he believed about his, his life and his service to the Lord. And he said this at the end of his life, he said, I said, he said, I never made a sacrifice. Now, How can he say that after all that he had endured, all that he had given it's because he, he more clearly saw all that he had gained in Christ. There's a fear that people have that if we talk too much about joy in the Christian life, that we're going to pamper people, we're going to create selfish people. But I think the scripture proves and history proves and, and even the last eight years of my life have, have, have shown me that if we try to create a loving people in the church and we do this end around of deep, profound joy in Jesus, you know, we, we will create a hardworking people that will do a lot for a period of time, but they, they will start to crash and burn. But, but, but if, we, if we pursue a profound, deep, abounding joy in Jesus, it's not gonna diminish love for others, it will deepen our love for others. If we pursue a profound joy in Jesus as our all-satisfying treasure, It will not pamper people, it will prepare us to suffer. And so joy in Jesus is not antithetical to loving people, it is the solution, it is the power to do so. And so if I could end with this final simple application for us as a church, for Perimeter Church, for us that are here, here's a simple application question is is this, is church, do you have a thirst for God? Do you have a thirst for him? Do you have a hunger for God? Do you long to be satisfied with the living God? Then the Lord Jesus Christ, he invites us all. He invites us all and he says, have no boundaries on your appetite. Have no boundaries on your appetite for joy because my glory and my ability to satisfy has absolutely no limits. And is your hunger for God that glorifies him. It is the essence of what glorifies him. And so desire him, thirst for him, hunger for him. And yet remember the gospel, because I know that we come here, I come here, we all come here falling short, that we have not feasted on Christ. We have not desired him as we ought. But I think the apex of God's beauty and glory is seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the cross of Christ that he invites us who have eaten too far often at the table of sin, and he invites us to eat at the table of his grace, free of cost, paid by the blood of his son. And so you come, we come freely invited to enjoy him because Christ has paid it all. He has made the way by his precious blood. And maybe some of you, maybe some that are here, maybe you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then the Lord Jesus Christ invites you to come and tea that he is good, that he will forgive all of your sins, repent of the fleeting pleasures of sin and embrace Christ as your savior and satisfier and he will come and make his home with you. I pray that you would do that even this day, even this moment. And so church, if we eat, If we drink, if we are satisfied, we will become a church that is so full, so satisfied that becomes overflowing, overflowing in a flood of love for this world, for our cities and for the nations. And so this world that is dying without hope, dying without Christ will taste and see through us. They will taste and see that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus saves and Jesus satisfies. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you this, this morning. Thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who saves us from our sin. Though we have gone often to the table of sin, though we have feasted on this world so often, we thank you that your grace never runs out. We can come to you again and again and again and again. And there is a feast that awaits us. And you say, have no boundaries on your appetite. No more boundaries. Eat to your deepest desire. There are no boundaries on his ability to give. Everything you've ever wanted, is in him. So eat and maybe some of you for the first time If you've not been born again of the Holy Spirit, allow the Spirit to do his work in your heart to enable you to see Jesus Christ. Leave behind your sin. Oh God, would you do that work? Would you do that work? Would you be the savior and the satisfier? We love you, God, and as you do that, May we then become a river that feeds a world in need of you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.